This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Greetings. Welcome to another episode of the ATS Reading List Podcast, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society's Section on Medical Education, the Training Committee, and Trainees Interested in Medical Education. I am PJ Gary, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jan Duke. Hi, guys. In this episode, we have the great pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Elise LaFond to discuss two articles on obstetric critical care. We will discuss, with some brevity, parts one and part two of articles entitled Critical Illness in Pregnancy, both of which were published in CHEST in 2015. Now, before we begin, for our audience, the episode that follows is certainly not all-encompassing when it comes to these two articles, but I will add that they are themselves highly accessible in the sense that there are a number of high-yield principles and some really great tables outlining, highlighting, an otherwise dense and difficult topic. We'll jump right into introducing our guest. So Dr. LaFon attended Tufts University School of Medicine and completed her internal medicine training at UC Davis. She went on to complete a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care at Cornell, where she served as chief fellow and was voted fellow of the year. She's now an assistant professor of medicine at NYU, where she works in the medical ICU and on the inpatient pulmonary consult service. She just finished her first year as an attending and was voted critical care teacher of the year. Her special interests involve the care of pregnant and postpartum patients in the ICU. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband. Most importantly, she is sick of lying about noble hobbies on these biographies her favorite days include long dinners and drinks with her friends and family. She has a bad shopping habit, which I totally relate to. Welcome, Dr. LaFon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. We are excited to get her views on these articles and help you make a dent in your reading list. So let's get into it. Dr. LaFond, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, welcome, Dr. LaFon. We are so excited to have you on the show to talk about a topic that I think many of us wish we actually knew a bit more about. And because this can be unfamiliar territory, let's try to keep things systematic and start with some definitions and then move on to normal physiology of pregnancy. First off, for our audience, it's important to remember that obstetric patients by definition are those admitted during their pregnancy or within the first six weeks postpartum. We also know that if an OB patient is admitted to the ICU, 50% of admissions occur during labor or within 24 hours after delivery. In recent years, maternal mortality has improved. We still have some work to do. So Dr. Lafon, what are some of the key things that you keep in mind in terms of physiologic changes that occur in pregnancy that intensivists should keep in mind? So there are a lot of physiologic changes that occur with pregnancy, but I think for intensivists, the most important ones to highlight are the cardiac and the respiratory changes. So patients who are pregnant have an increased cardiac output and that usually starts to happen around weeks eight to 28. And they also have a 50% increase in their plasma volume. The blood pressure will decrease throughout the pregnancy until about 28 weeks, and then it will increase to normal at term. There's also a reduction in the systemic vascular resistance, and the heart rate increases by about 10 to 15 beats. From a respiratory standpoint, progesterone actually causes an increase in the tidal volume, 
which increases the minute ventilation in pregnancy by nearly 50% without changing the respiratory rate at all. And so this means that pregnant patients have a compensated respiratory alkalosis with an average PCO2 somewhere between 28 and 32. The diaphragms are also elevated, which causes a decrease in the functional residual capacity, as well as the residual volume and the expiratory reserve volume without any changes in the other sort of PFT parameters. So no changes in the FEV1, FEV1 to FVC ratio, TLC, or DLCO. That was gold. And this is a lot to keep straight, but as with all of the patients that we see in the ICU, understanding the underlying physiology is key to management. I know I'm going to have to come back to this section of the article and to this part of the podcast, but that's okay. And I think it's important to have a solid reference for these patients when they inevitably arrive in our ICUs. So let's move on specifically to various obstetric causes of ICU admission. These tend to be the more common reason for ICU admission in this population rather than medical reasons, but it can be difficult to differentiate between the two. What tips do you have for our audience here, Dr. LaFond? So when I admit a pregnant patient to the ICU, I like to think about the differential in sort of two different categories diseases that are absolutely unique to the pregnant state, and then diseases that are common in our ICUs that can also affect pregnant patients. So I'll mention quite a few diagnoses here, and we'll be talking about them hopefully in more detail a little bit further on in our conversation. But in the OB specific conditions, what I try to remember are following. So severe preeclampsia and eclampsia, acute fatty liver of pregnancy, HELP syndrome, which of course stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets, and amniotic fluid embolism. So those are some of the big pregnancy-specific conditions. And then we can see other conditions uh, that affect the adults that we admit to the ICU all the time that can also occur in pregnant patients. And these are things like peripartum cardiomyopathy and hypertensive diseases when we see hemorrhage and DIC from an obstetric cause. From a pulmonary standpoint, we can see asthma exacerbations and ARDS, pulmonary emboli, pulmonary edema, pulmonary hypertension in pregnant patients as well. We can see things like sepsis, DKA, TTP, and HUS. So this second category are conditions that we're usually a bit more familiar with as medical intensivists that then apply to the pregnant population. I think that's super helpful to kind of break down our thought process in those in those buckets when we think through differential. Now, you mentioned obstetric-specific sepsis and hemorrhage and preeclampsia and eclampsia. Now, those are the most common reasons for ICU admission in this population. And I know as a fellow, we are very familiar with sepsis. We know it well. We know that the microbiota and source con- considerations are obvious, but I wonder how that differs a bit in this OB population. And when we add in renal failure and consider some of the other things, like you mentioned, HELP syndrome, it gets quite confusing. I will add that there's a excellent table in part two that outlines some of this, which I encourage our listeners to take a look. But more specifically, how should we work our way through these cases in order to differentiate these overlapping 
pathophysiologic spectrums of preeclampsia, eclampsia, HELP versus TTP, HUS, and DIC. Any recommendations? So I think this is one of the most challenging features of uh, obstetric critical care. It always involves a lot of consultants and bringing a lot of smart brains together to try and get to the bottom of the case. But I do think it's helpful to have a foundational sort of understanding of some of these conditions. So I'll go through a couple of these with you. And I think it's important to start with the hypertensive disorder spectrum in OB. So this is OB's bread and butter, but sort of less commonly known to us in the medical world. So we'll start with preeclampsia. Preeclampsia refers to the new onset of hypertension and proteinuria, or the new onset of hypertension and end organ dysfunction at or after 20 weeks of gestation. And it can also occur postpartum. One little tip here is that the serum urate levels are often increased with preeclampsia. So that's a helpful lab to check if your patient has this condition. So that's the definition of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia with severe features is sort of our next tier. And that's when a patient has preeclampsia and one or more of the following complications, a systolic blood pressure greater than 160 or a diastolic greater than 110 on two separate occasions, four hours apart or systemic symptoms like CNS dysfunction, hepatic dysfunction, renal dysfunction, pulmonary edema, et cetera. So that's going to constitute severe preeclampsia with severe features. And then eclampsia refers to the presence of a seizure or a coma in a patient who has preeclampsia. So we'll start with that. Now, HELP syndrome is likely a subtype of preeclampsia with severe features in which hemolysis and elevated liver enzymes and thrombocytopenia are the predominant features rather than hypertension or CNS dysfunction or renal dysfunction. Um, the majority of HELP patients have hypertension and have proteinuria greater than 85% of them. So that's why this is really thought to be a condition that's sort of on the spectrum of preeclampsia with severe features. Now, there are some other conditions that share features with preeclampsia with severe features and help that will always come up on the differential when these patients come to the ICU. So I'll try to go over a couple of those as well. One of those is acute fatty liver of pregnancy, which does have a significant overlap with preeclampsia with severe features and with help both typically present in the third trimester. And one tip for distinguishing the difference between these two is that the fibrinogen should be and is low in acute fatty liver of pregnancy, whereas low fibrinogen is not a feature of preeclampsia with severe features or of help. And then similarly, I think we're familiar with more of these features of liver failure since we see a lot of liver failure in our ICUs, but you can also see hypoglycemia, an elevated ammonia, prolonged PT and PTT. These are all features that are common with acute fatty liver of pregnancy, but are not common in preeclampsia with severe features or in help. So moving on. I want to talk a little bit about TTP and HUS, which also makes its way onto the differential. This is really important distinction to make because both for therapeutic and diagnostic reasons, since obviously we want to start plasma exchange as soon as we can in patients who have TTP, right? And that's a big part of our therapy. 
So TTP can present similarly in that it can have severe thrombocytopenia and anemia, as well as elevated LDH levels, which are seen in both conditions. However, in TTP, there's usually normal or very minimal elevation in the LFTs. This is much more so a feature of help. We do send the Adam TS13 when TTP is on the differential, but I think we all know it usually takes so long to come back that it's not actually helpful in making any urgent decisions. And we just have to sort of gather the experts and do our best to make a decision based on clinically the information that we have in front of us. With HUS uh, in pregnancy, it's usually seen in the postpartum period. Greater than 80% of cases are postpartum. And AKI tends to be the overriding feature here rather than thrombocytopenia. And greater than 70% of these patients are going to need dialysis. Whereas with preeclampsia with severe features or help, once the baby is delivered, the renal function usually improves thereafter. And then finally, I think lupus is important to put in this differential as well. So if you have a pregnant patient with lupus, it can be really hard to distinguish a flare from preeclampsia with severe features or help, particularly in patients who have lupus nephritis. And so in these cases, it's important to check complement levels and the titer of anti-double-stranded DNA. In a lupus flare, you'll see low complement and elevated titers of anti-double-stranded DNA, whereas these labs are normal in preeclampsia. Awesome. I think that outline is going to be very helpful for many of our listeners. What I'm taking away is that there are some common laboratory findings and additional laboratory studies that can help distinguish these different processes from one another and our consulting teams can help further sort it all out. Really, having a solid reference is key, and that's where I think the tables from these articles and the others that we've included in the show notes can come into play. I think Dr. LaFond did a really nice job of outlining the overlapping spectrum of preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. So moving on, we can't talk about transfusion in the obstetrics population without discussing massive transfusion. Obviously, we have to consider the obstetric-specific causes of bleeding in this population, such as postpartum hemorrhage, placental abruption, and placenta accreta. But what's different about massive transfusion in the obstetric population, Dr. LaFond? How should we be organizing our team differently? Should we be thinking about access in these patients differently? And how should we think about the ratio and rapidity of transfusion differently? Great question. So first and foremost, I think it's really important to collaborate with our OB colleagues here regarding the source of bleeding and whether further surgical intervention is warranted in order to control that bleeding. So obviously that's their realm of expertise, and it's important to communicate very clearly with them about that. In regards to sort of just managing the resuscitation, the good news is that there really are not any big differences. We still transfuse with a one-to-one-to-one ratio for obstetric hemorrhage. And oftentimes, if you remember back to the physiologic changes of pregnancy, because there's such an increase in the blood volume to begin with, patients can actually handle the bleeding a little bit better. So there's, they actually often do pretty well, but the big things are to just use our usual massive transfusion typical approach to access with large bore IVs, and then talk with OB about whether the patient's going to need more definitive surgical management. It's encouraging to know that 
everything I knew about bleeding still holds in this population for sure. I feel like as an intensivist, sometimes we get nervous with a little bit too much bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. So any quick thoughts or pointers on the rare, but always feared amniotic fluid embolism? Yeah. So amniotic fluid embolism is one of the most feared OB complications. It happens very suddenly. There's a very high mortality rate and there's really no specific treatment other than supportive care. Amniotic fluid embolism, how it happens is still sort of largely unknown, but the hypothesis is that the entry of amniotic fluid into the maternal systemic circulation activates a bunch of vasoactive substances, or as I call it, quote unquote, science, leading to an acute elevation in pulmonary pressures that cause RV failure. And interestingly, this is not a mechanical obstruction of the pulmonary arteries from debris or from cellular components. It's all vasoconstriction. And so typically when a patient has an amniotic fluid embolus, the presenting sign and symptom is going to be acute cardiopulmonary collapse. And a lot of the time it's cardiac arrest. I think one of the most unique features of AFE is that in greater than 80% of cases, it's followed by severe DIC and hemorrhage, often within seconds to minutes of the event. I think that it's really important to remember this. If you think about a pregnant patient during delivery or immediately thereafter having a cardiac arrest, I think AFE and PE are pretty high on the differential. And obviously these things are treated quite differently, right? If you're in a code situation and you're thinking about pushing TPA from a PE, that could obviously be harmful if really it's an AFE. So I think right around the time of the arrest, OB and anesthesia are very good about looking, look at all the IV sites, look at the surgical sites. And if this is amniotic fluid embolus, most of the time within seconds to minutes, you're going to see oozing from all of those places and feel a little bit more confident that AFE is your diagnosis. I can't wait to use quote unquote science with my team (laughs) to explain future medical issues. So thank you for that one. I'm definitely a clinician. So (laughs) I'm definitely going to use that to answer the question of an intern whose question I can't answer. Exactly. That's when it really comes in handy. Well, that is incredibly helpful. And I actually learned a number of things in that explanation alone. So thank you for that, Dr. LaFon. Of course. Now that we have a better understanding of common obstetric-specific reasons for ICU admission, I'm going to be doing this on my own, right? Should I only make these decisions with an OBGYN expert? When do you recommend involving OBGYN or consulting other services in the care of these patients? So immediately would be the short answer. The way that it works in our hospital, and I think a lot of other hospitals, is that pregnant patients go through an OB, like a separate triage, basically. And so oftentimes it's the OB teams that are consulting us um, and not the other way around. But you should always, always, always have an OB or an MFM doc who's helping you manage these patients. And you should be communicating regularly throughout the day. The multidisciplinary approach that's needed to take care of these patients cannot be underestimated. And I think, you know, in general, given the patient population, we as intensivists have a very low threshold to bring these patients to the ICU when we receive a consult. And we have a low threshold to consult our colleagues in nephrology, hematology, rheumatology, and ID. As we talked about earlier, there can be so much overlap. And I think having as many experts on board as you can is really helpful. 
So you're never alone is basically what I'm you're, hearing. You right? shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Yeah, exactly. Love it. So we talked a little bit about the different buckets of problems, if you will. So I think we should touch a bit on some of those medical issues that affect our OB population. One of the things I really found interesting in the part two section of the article was how common ARDS is in these patients. So it's 10 times more common in pregnant patients. And those causes can include things like amniotic fluid embolism, like we discussed, severe preeclampsia, OB-specific sepsis, and other medical disorders. Can you walk us through your approach to these patients? And you can you specifically highlight your thought process when you intubate these patients and then ventilate them if they do require intubation? Definitely. So let's start with intubation. I think there are three big things to know about the obstetric airway. Uh, first is that as a normal part of pregnancy, there is significant hyperemia and edema of the upper respiratory mucosa. And this is why so many pregnant women are plagued with phasomotor rhinitis. All of this edema and secretions and erythema can make the airway anatomically quite challenging. And so always have a backup ready. For me, that backup is a bougie. Um, for you, it's whatever you know you prefer in your own personal practice to use as a backup that you, you feel confident with. And then I always make sure to have a smaller tube available. So something like a seven or six, five, or even a six O due to the amount of edema that I'm expecting to find in the airway. The second thing is that there's an increased risk of aspiration of gastric contents for two reasons. One is that hormonally, the lower esophageal sphincter is very relaxed as a normal physiologic effect of pregnancy. And then in addition to that, you have a gravid uterus, which is displacing everything upwards. And so the risk of aspiration in these airways is very high. Um, for that reason, I always pre-oxygenate with the head of the bed at 30 degrees and I intubate with, uh, using RSI rapid sequence and rocuronium and atomidate are both safe to use during pregnancy. Um, those are the drugs that we tend to use with RSI most commonly in my institution. And those are perfectly safe to use if you're intubating a pregnant patient. The third thing is that pregnant patients have an increased metabolic consumption of oxygen and they have a decreased FRC, which combines to make a patient who is not very tolerant of apnea. So we try to have the most experienced person at intubating, performing the airway, and if possible, have others present at the bedside in case there's a challenge with the, um, with the airway itself. Now, once the patient is intubated, I think one of the only big differences with managing the ventilator is that we want to target a PCO2 that's lower than usual due to the compensated respiratory alkalosis that's present with pregnancy. As you know, with ARDS, we often use permissive hypercapnia. And so this is something that I would try to avoid when you're taking care of a pregnant patient with ARDS. So in pregnancy, PCO2 levels between 60 and 70 are going to decrease uterine blood flow and increase the fetal intracranial pressure. And similarly, low levels of CO2, so maternal hypocapnia, can lead to decreased placental blood flow and fetal alkalosis, which will shift the curve to the left, causing fetal hypoxia. So from a ventilation standpoint, I do try and target a PCO2 that's, you know, a little bit lower and try to avoid permissive hypercapnia in ARDS patients. And for oxygenation, we target a little bit higher of a PAO2 than we usually do. So somewhere between 65 and 70. 
One other point worth mentioning is that it's very safe to use prone positioning in pregnant patients, even when they're very far along into their pregnancy. There are some really great resources available now that can show you how to safely do prone positioning in a pregnant patient in order to offload the uterus. It's important to know that prone positioning is a safe and effective strategy to use when you're taking care of pregnant patients with ARDS. Nice. I like that. That is super helpful. Now I have the patient on the ventilator, but they're not doing so well. In the subset of gravid patients who may progress enough to require consideration of ECMO, can you talk a little bit about how the candidacy for cannulation and consideration of ECMO might differ from the general patient population? Almost all pregnant or postpartum patients are likely going to meet cannulation criteria for ECMO. They are in general a younger patient population with treatable and potentially reversible conditions. The only things that I think can sometimes give pause are in these cases where there's severe thrombocytopenia, but even in those cases, I think if you're at an uh, ECMO, a hospital that has ECMO and an aggressive ECMO program, uh, these patients will most often be cannulated if necessary. I think the biggest thing is to call early. If you have a patient that you're worried about and you're intubating them and they're in ARDS, it's better to have the ECMO team and the cardiothoracic surgeons on board sooner rather than later so that a plan can be put in place for if and when the patient decompensates. You know, these articles were written in 2015. And since then, you know, a lot has happened. We've made a lot of advancements in ECMO and we've put a lot more pregnant patients on ECMO. And that has been especially true in the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we've done so, we've learned that the outcomes are actually quite good and better than the general population for pregnant patients. And so knowing this, I would say it's really important to call early and to get everyone on board so that you're prepared if the patient does need to be cannulated. It's helpful to know that these patients do well on the machine. It helps me talk to my patients a little bit more specifically. I was wondering if you could jump a bit to sepsis. Now, sepsis accounted for 9.7% of worldwide maternal deaths in 2013. However, I, I realize that most of the literature that we have on sepsis management doesn't come from this patient population. Are there any specific considerations when thinking about septic shock in an obstetric patient? So when it comes to septic shock in obstetric patients, I think the most important thing is to recognize that there are a lot of potential sources that we don't typically think about in our regular medical ICU patients. And these are usually genitourinary sources. So things like chorioamnionitis, endometritis, septic abortion, and things like uterine microabscesses, which can form along uterine incisions as a complication of choreo. These are often processes that will require close communication with OB in terms of source control, because sometimes they'll have to go back in or do a different procedure in order to obtain source control. So talking with them about what the source control plan is, is very important. And then you have all the infections that we usually see that pregnant patients can also get pneumonia, UTIs, things like that. So those should also be on the differential. Now, OB tends to use different empiric antibiotics than we typically do in the medical ICU. And I don't know if you've heard of them referred to as 
triples, but their most common upfront empiric antibiotic regimen is ampicillin, gentamicin, and clindamycin. And this is a regimen that covers the most commonly reported pathogens in maternal sepsis, which are usually E. coli, strep, staph, and some other gram-negative bacteria. If a patient is coming to the ICU in septic shock, I will typically broaden them to our usual vancosin or something similar, a carbapenem maybe, just to cover for um, resistant bacteria. And similarly, if a patient's coming in septic shock, it's important to note that vasopressor wise, there's really no vasopressor that's sort of off limits with pregnant patients. You should use the same approach that you do in non-pregnant patients. So with Levafed uh, as our first line presser. I think we would be remiss if we did not discuss my favorite topic pulmonary embolism. As we know, VTE is seven to 10 times more common in pregnancy than in aged matched non-pregnant women, and it occurs in about one in 1,000 pregnancies. We've improved in this regard in many ways, but it is no doubt influenced by delays in diagnosis due to the obvious fear of exposing pregnant patients to radiation for CT imaging. The article highlights that the increased risk persists for up to six weeks postpartum, and it's believed to be due to a number of variations on the Virchow's triad theme that may impact these pregnant patients. Interestingly enough, many of these patients have left lower extremity DVT because of compression of the left internal iliac. What mistakes do you think are commonly encountered by clinicians when treating a pregnant patient with a potential or confirmed VTE? So one of the biggest um, mistakes that I think I see time and time again is not getting the CAT scan when the CAT scan is indicated. Obviously, a lot of pregnant patients are understandably fearful of exposure to radiation during their pregnancy, but it's important to know uh, for us as the providers who are ordering these studies, what the risks are that they're worried about and how to help reassure patients. So ionizing radiation can impact the fetus mostly in the first 15 weeks of gestation and only at a threshold above 50 to 100 milligray. And when you order a CAT scan of the chest to evaluate for PE in a pregnant patient, the fetus is only exposed to 0.01 to 0.6 milligray. I think it's really helpful to have those numbers when you're talking with patients. And in particular, I would really, really recommend talking with the OB. Most patients who are pregnant have a really trusting, good relationship with their OB. And I have yet to have one say yes to a CAT scan without first talking with OB. So OB will absolutely support you in this venture. Usually they're on the sidelines being like, get the CT. (laughs) So they're very helpful in talking with patients about that. I don't like to use VQ scans. The fetal radiation exposure is actually a bit higher in a VQ scan, and it's around 0.5 milligray. It just has uh, less radiation exposure to the mother. I think the results are kind of frustrating in terms of receiving probabilities. And unlike a CT, we don't have the ability to make an alternative diagnosis with a VQ scan. So for all of these reasons, if you suspect PE in a pregnant patient, I would get the CT scan if it's indicated. One strategy can always be to get lower extremity Dopplers to start. And then if those are positive, you're done. But if they're negative and it's still high on your list, then you should get the PE scan. I'm glad we were able to touch base on the PEVTE topic. Okay. Uh, I'll ask the question that we don't want to ask, but must ask as code leaders. What happens if my pregnant patient loses a pulse? 
What should I do? I think this is one of everyone's most feared occurrences in the hospital and in the ICU. And I'll try to provide you with a few pearls. Um, For the most part, you're going to start ACLS as you always do with no real exceptions. One thing you can keep in mind is that during CPR, if the patient is pregnant, having someone provide continuous manual left uterine displacement will be helpful in reducing aortocaval compression that can then decrease your venous return. So I assign someone to do this just like you would assign any other person during the code. If you are in a situation where you need to administer a shock, it is safe to defibrillate a patient who is pregnant at any stage in pregnancy, and you can actually also do so while there are fetal monitors on. As a sort of general rule, there's really not much of a role for fetal monitoring during the cardiac arrest, Um, but if those happen to be on, you don't need to take them off before you deliver a shock. There's really no difference in the pharmacotherapies, you know, things like epinephrine that are administered. Uh, just follow ACLS as you usually do. Probably the most important thing to recognize is that if this is a pregnant patient with a viable pregnancy in terms of how far along they are, then OB is most likely going to perform a perimortem C-section. And the literature states that this should be considered and started within four to five minutes of a cardiac arrest. But at least at our institution and the the programs where I've trained, most of them will start preparing for it as soon as cardiac arrest starts. You don't need to do anything differently other than make room at that part of the bed for OB. They really just need a scalpel. You should keep doing CPR. I've only seen one of these in my short career so far, and it was truly remarkable. I think, you know, OB, they're so talented and they're such great surgeons. And so really as soon as I start to run this code that I'm, you know, thinking about rehearsing in my head, I'm making sure that there's enough room for OB at that part of the bed and that they have all the materials that they need. Whenever we have a pregnant patient in the ICU, we keep a C-section tray at the bedside, which I think is a good practice just so that in the event that sort of the unspeakable, unthinkable happens, we're as prepared uh, as we need to be. We can call OB immediately and they can get right to work. Excellent. I think as Jan alluded to, it's not something that we necessarily want to think about, but we should definitely be prepared for the absolute worst. And I think that was a really nice way of providing our listeners with a roadmap to how to deal with these sorts of situations. And again, emphasizing just how instrumental OB can be in the care of these patients. Absolutely. All right, Dr. LaFon, we've covered a ton, but any last thoughts or words of wisdom for our listeners? So I would say my two biggest takeaways and things to remember would be first and foremost, to have excellent communication with your OB colleagues and just sort of respect the amount of expertise that they have when it comes to taking care of these patients and try to work together with them for the best outcome. The second thing is that one of the most important tenets of caring for pregnant patients in the ICU is to remember that what is medically best for the pregnant patient is also often what is best for the baby. And there can be a lot of fear around things like administering a medication that could be harmful and you know whether management of these conditions is different in pregnancy or not. And so in these situations, I would encourage you to talk with OB and MFM, uh, of course, and just sort of 
you know, take their expertise um, into account, but to remember that usually the standard way of treating and supporting pregnant patients is going to result in the best outcome. Thank you, Dr. LaFond, for joining us for this episode. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. This episode of the ATS Reading List podcast was, as always, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society section on medical education, the training committee, and time. If you enjoyed this content, please like it, rate it, review it, or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and have a lovely day.